Francis Schaeffer was a pretty famous theologian kind of in the mid-1900s. And Schaefer um, moved out to the Alps to, to start this community up in the Alps of people that are skeptical, people that are questioning, people that want a space to process. And, and he was an apologist, and, and he definitely had an interest in people knowing the truth. And he was evangelical by nature. That's, that's what he would identify himself as. But when he moved there, he really struggled with what was going on. And from one of the biographies about him, it says this, by 1951, Schaefer felt he had seen so much that was harsh and ugly within the separated movement, which is sort of the, the fundamentalist movement at the time, that he was not sure he could in honesty be a Christian any longer. He saw so much that was negative, so much that defined itself primarily in terms of what it was against. He saw so much fighting, infighting within the circles of that he was a part of in his own denomination and across large segments of the evangelical community, he began to despair of whether Christianity could indeed be true. Schaefer was not only dissatisfied with his critics, of which they were a part, he said uh, to his wife, Edith, I feel really torn to pieces by the lack of reality, the lack of seeing the results the Bible talks about, which should be seen in the Lord's people. I'm not talking only about people I'm working with in the movement, which is kind of the part he was a part of, but I'm not satisfied with myself. It seems that the only honest thing to do is to rethink, re-examine the whole matter of Christianity. Is it true? He says, I need to go back to an agnosticism and start from the beginning. And he went through a period lasting several months during which he reread the Bible, th uh, thought through the most basic questions about our human situation all over again. And Francis, uh, I don't give away Francis' story because it's, it's an amazing um, play out from that point on. But he is where some of us are with this whole disillusionment conversation, where we just don't see sometimes the kingdom of God in the very places that are supposed to be reflective of the kingdom of God. The next thing I think that happens to people is disorientation. Walter Brueggemann speaks of the Psalms. He says some of the Psalms are in this world of disorientation. There's orientating Psalms. There's Psalms that, that point you directly to God and say, this is what God is like. But then there's Psalms of disorientation. And what he means by that is the psalmist dealing with the fact that circumstances in life and the goodness of God or something about God's character don't seem to align. That some of us go through such intense suffering, a child dying of a disease, fertility problems, the death of a loved one, various forms of suffering and misunderstanding of the world that it's hard to reconcile. When circumstances fall apart, the difficult seasons of life and the answers just don't fit our experiences. That's why the psalmist will say, like, God, where are you? God, don't take your spirit from me. God, my enemies are all around me, and I don't, I don't see you. I don't feel you. I don't, where are you? And that disorientation that comes through legitimate suffering and trauma in life causes some people to kind of be in this place where the faith, the simplistic parts of faith that they were handed just don't work per se. And the pieces keep coming out. And I also want to talk through this last D, which is probably the most positive. Um, but it's at some point in our journey, we also realize that the theology that we learn um, doesn't really fit on the flannel graph anymore. Um, if you grew up in church, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, if you didn't, like me, I had to learn what a flannel graph was, which is... Um, 
this little thing that would be in kids' Sunday schools where they would have little figurines that would teach you about Bible stories and stuff like that. And you get handed, and I had a good conversation between services with someone about this, you get handed like these simple, basic things around faith. And at some point in your maturing process, whether that's even at 10 years old, whether that's as an adult, whatever part of the process you may be in, you start realizing that some of the things you were taught are bigger or different or more in-depth or more complicated than what you originally heard. Like maybe salvation is bigger than what we thought. Maybe this, this Bible and these words are more multidimensional than sometimes the flat way we are taught how to read it. Maybe um, terms that we used in the past are much more nuanced and layered than we ever knew. Maybe Jesus' grace is way more scandalous than we originally thought it to be. Maybe the vision of the church is way more incredible than really what we've experienced. And the gospel, the words, the gospel, the good news encompasses maybe so much more than our finite definition that we've been handed. And it causes us to go, well, what, if, what were the things I was taught? And do they make sense? And what is true? And then at some point, this happens. And, and I've watched people walk away from church here. That so much of the doubt and the disillusionment, the disorientation, the discipleship, the questions that cause us to to sit here and go, I don't know what's true anymore. And I, I don't know what to believe. And for too much of the church, no one was allowed to talk about any of this stuff. And for those wondering, this is very much a picture of what is used around the buzzword deconstruction. Right? It's literally what we just did. We deconstructed Jenga. Now, I am not interested in focusing on the word deconstruction. I think at some point, as with most things nowadays, it's a word that's used by one side to argue against the other side, and neither of them define it the same way, and they just talk past each other, right? Which is like half of politics right now. It's like you can't even find a common definition or articulate the other side's definition of that word, and then everybody struggles. But let's be real. This process, what we just walked through, it's not, it didn't start in 1900s French-German philosophy. This is old. It's old because it's in scripture too. This whole kind of walking through what it looks like to ask questions. Because we see it time and time again. Jesus comes along in Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey, you have heard it said. You, you have been built up with a certain understanding of a theological system, but I say to you what is actually what God we see it in Saul or Paul of Tarsus, who at his moment in life thinks he's being completely obedient to the Torah and to Yahweh, that he is doing exactly what God has instructed him to do. He is following him with zeal for Yahweh himself, with zeal for the Torah itself. And then God comes along, slaps him on his booty and says, no, Paul, you're persecuting me. You've missed it. These followers of the way, there's a new way and a new creation way of living, and you're stuck in the old creation way of understanding the world. And it's broken down for him. Even the prophets who have interaction with Israel, right? When we say, like if I were to say, does God dwell in the temple in the Old Testament? What would we say? Yeah, right? But it's kind of. 
Like even when Solomon dedicates the temple in his story, he's like, God, this is your house and you're going to dwell. But God, even the heavens can't contain you. So I know that even this building on earth is not going to contain you. But at some point, the Israelites forget that. And they start building a system and structure of how God operates and how God acts. And they think that God literally can only dwell in this temple. And when that temple gets destroyed, they're all going, what are we going to do when we're in captivity? And Ezekiel has to come along and be like, God was mobile the whole time. You, you guys, it, it was, he's not confined to the temple. It's okay. You've built an understanding of God that is not true. And I need to remind you and help you deconstruct this, this whole thing that you've built in order for you to understand what is true. Even John's gospel, I mean, you go through the first couple chapters, it's like these stories time and time again. Jesus in John 2 interacts with the religious leaders. He's like, I'm going to tear down this temple. And the Sadducees, whose whole system is about the temple and the Torah and everything they understand about how the temple works and how the system works, he, he stands there and he says, I'm going to destroy that. And they can't even fathom it. Not to mention their elaborately constructed temple religion and they fume in anger. By John 3, Jesus interacts with Nicodemus. He's like, look, you've got to be born again, Nicodemus. All these rules about what it takes to be uh, right with God, the respectable, grown-up, spiritual leader that you are, that is not how God necessarily operates. And this Pharisee, Jesus declares to him, tear down this, this life that you built that is by grace and faith. You have to be born again, not just obedient to everything. And Nicodemus struggles with it. Jesus is just going back to what was true of Abraham. He's not saying a bunch of new things. He's helping to deconstruct the things that have been built. Or John 4, Jesus interacts with a woman in a well to tear down her liturgical obsession with a singular place. He's like, well, well, God has to be worshipped here. We're Samaritans, and we've got our mountain, and it's got to be our way of doing things. And Jesus informs her that this time will come when it's not about this mountain of Jerusalem or not about this mountain of Samaria. He's saying that, that ultimately every place will be a site for worship. And he, she's, he's taking her understanding of exactly how God needs to operate and, and breaking it down in order for her to understand that much more of what God has already said and what God's going to do. And in short, it's actually possible to read these chapters as a series of, not to use the word over and over, but deconstruction acts. A deconstruction of the Sadducees' devotion to the written law that led to a distorted temple religion. A deconstruction of Nicodemus' Pharisaic devotion of the oral law. A deconstruction of the Samaritans' devotion to a physical place uh, as paramount to true worship. And Jesus walks through time and time again these interactions with people where he's like, you've understood this thing that you have built, but it's not quite true. Now, what to do when you're here, though? What to do when... You're kind of at the spot where it's like, I don't, I don't know where I am with my faith. And hear me, like, I, I, re I really want to make sure that there is no distance from this pulpit to those of you that are in that spot. That, that, that we are legitimately a community that goes, yeah, I may be here. I know some of your stories. I know some of you who are. And I've watched people walk away from the church because they haven't felt like there's been a place to actually voice any of this. But I think there's sort of at a crossroads where you can approach sort of all these moments where doubt and disillusionment and all come in and what to do about it. And I want to talk about those two crossroads. And we're going to start with Genesis 3 as one of those ways. So you have Adam and Eve. They are created. They are in this beautiful garden which God has given them. 
God gives them every tree possible in the garden, but tells them, no, this one tree is off limits. And gosh, I hope to preach through some of this text one day um, as like a whole story, but that's, we'll get there. We got to get through Matthew first. But then the serpent comes along in Genesis 3.1. says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. Oh, wait, no, I have this. Yeah, serpent is more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to woman, did God actually say? Now, it's an interesting moment. What is the serpent actually asking? Because let's be clear. I'm going to say it. There's two paths. There's a way to approach sort of this faith crisis moment in a way that is serpent or satanic, if you want to ascribe that to the serpent. And there's a way that I think it's more Jesus, Jesus-centric, Christocentric. And in the serpent moment, we have this serpent who is ultimately challenging, I would argue, the very word of God itself. That's coming along and trying to redefine and ultimately cause Adam and Eve to reject the very thing that God has actually said. Um, I think there's a metaphor that's kind of apropos that um, uh, Josh Ryan Butler, um, this pastor out in Arizona, kind of talks about. He says that when he's traveling in um, London, he goes to Hyde Park, which is like their version of Central Park to New York. Hyde Park's like their Central Park. He goes to Hyde Park and it's beautiful, it's historic buildings, they're amazing. And there's one beautiful facade of this building, and on the side it says, Deconstruct London. And at some point, they weren't using it in terms of any sort of things like we're doing, they were doing literal construction and deconstruction. Um, and so you have these beautiful facades of these buildings. And they used to be these old, beautiful, ancient buildings, they were ancient through and through. And London had decided that hey, when you, when you demo, you have to leave the facade. We can't destroy the facade. You can gut the rest of the building, but you have to leave the facade there. And at some point, like if you were to walk up to this building and look inside the windows, there's like nothing there. But it still looks beautiful on the outside. And there's a version, I would argue, of deconstruction that does exist out there that is a little bit like this. Or maybe it's using language that sounds kind of Christian-y, Maybe it's saying Jesus stuff. It feels very spiritual. But there's been a total abandonment with all the guts that is historic Christianity in any way. And when I say historic Christianity, I'm not just talking about the past 150 years in America. Hope you hear that. Like a gutting of even some of the most basic early church creeds that Catholics and Protestants and even some Orthodox kind of all say, sure, from different continents across the globe and go, yes, this is fundamentally essentially true. Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, some of those pieces. And there is some that come along and go, yeah, all this stuff is kind of bunk. Let's throw it all out. But we're still Christian. We're still spiritual. I mean, there's someone I follow on Instagram who uses all sorts of Christian language, but almost nothing he actually talks about is Christian. Um, by just about every standard you could possibly measure and so it is there. And, and too often, I would say, it's essentially clarifying God's word, but ultimately seeking to redefine the overall or reject God's word. And it's a pattern of deconstruction who would use the world itself to start critiquing scripture and its authority over the church to begin with. And I think the serpent's ultimately doing that. But Jesus does something very different. As I already mentioned in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount moment, 
Jesus is interacting um, with these crowds. And he does something that's super rabbinic. It's not new to Jesus to teach this way. And at first he says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So what Jesus is saying is not to get rid of the old versions of things. He's not trying to do that. He's, he's coming to say, look, it's not, there's not a jot, there's not a tittle, there's not any part of the law that I'm trying to get rid of. But I've come to fulfill it. And so when he comes along and says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and we'll deal with this this much more when we get to Matthew, all he is ultimately doing is this rabbinic practice of going, look, you have heard what has been said and the various interpretations. Other rabbinic camps, other rabbinic interpretations, other oral laws have been built upon these things, all this kind of stuff. But I want to tell you what God actually means when he says these things. And he clarifies what, what God is ultimately after, or ultimately the heart matter of the things. And, and he who is the giver of the law to begin with in history that comes through Jesus is able to stand there and go, this is our intention. Me and the Father and the Holy Spirit, this is what we wanted of you, for you to see it this way. And he comes along and in some ways deconstructs and goes back to the very word to people that have built systems and structures on top of God's word itself, the way human traditions had corrupted biblical truth. Even Martin Luther, it's like deconstruction 101. He looked at the church, goes, something's really jacked up here. There's a whole lot of traditions, a whole lot of things that have been built upon the word. They sometimes sound very Christian-y, but they're not. And, and so he sat there and goes, let's test that. <laughs> let's go back to what is true and what is right and what is good and critique and reject that which is not of the kingdom of God and accept that which is true. And this is using scripture to critique the world's corruption of the church and the faith. Asking questions like, was I a part of a cultural system that I was handed, or was I really taught the way of Jesus that allows the Holy Spirit to transform my life? Is my picture of Jesus distorted? What needs to be looked at, or shed, or reframed, or broken down, whatever it may be, so I can see Jesus more clearly and love him and my neighbor the way that the good news of Jesus tells me to do? So over the next couple months, I want to journey through some of this rubble. And not because I have answers. <laughs> I want to be very clear. I don't. I may sound smarter than I am. Some of you are like, no, you don't. But, and there's a whole lot of things I don't know. There's smarter people in this room. I think you could talk to Graydon McCashin. He'll be able to tell you patristics of the church fathers way better than I could. You could talk to Dave Tiller, who could talk about Roman history and what was going on on the ground in the Bible more than I ever could. I think Tim Gray could probably analyze Reformed theology better than I can probably articulate it. There are people who just, yeah, you know more than I do. And I could sit there and go, yeah, I don't know. But I got questions. And I have a feeling that a lot of you probably have questions too questions you probably haven't articulated, questions you've been asked out loud, questions that should be discussed and wrestled through as a community together that we just haven't done. And my hope is that this is the place to do it. My hope is that you're in a life group and that's a place to do it. Sorry, life group leaders, you might get some weird questions over the next few months, but sorry, you, you, you could stand up there as a life group leader and go, I don't know either, just like Chris, that's fine. 
but that we have communities that walk through these questions. And it's not to say, I don't know, and to give up. It's to say, I don't know. Let's, let's, let's look at that together. Let's wrestle through that. Let's ask questions. What does the text really say? What has church history done about this? What, 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 are the, what are the things that we can walk through? As stated in the beginning, we will talk through doubt as part of this series. We will talk through the main things that cause disillusionment. We might even have a service that's just lamenting all the stuff that causes disillusionment with the church. We may talk through uh, disorientation and pray with those who are going through seasons that have just struggled to see the goodness of God in the circumstances of their life. We'll talk through discipleship and some of the ways maybe we've been handed stuff that is smaller than the view that scripture gives us. And perhaps maybe just to stoke the coals a little more, entice you a little. I'm not all sure yet we will cover. And maybe in this process we can help you rebuild, have conversations. Like, that would be an amazing end goal to me. One, one, one teacher said, uh, good teaching starts the conversation, it doesn't end it. And that's, that's where I want to be. That if I stand up here and give you all the answers, which I don't have and sometimes I pretend to have, that, that sometimes shuts down the conversation that actually needs to be had. Of living in some of the things that we're, de- we're dealing with. Jesus was asked 307 different questions throughout his ministry. You know how many he answered directly? Three. He answered questions often with another question. He answered questions with some kind of weird parable that people are like, I don't understand what you're talking about, Jesus. He did all these kind of stuff, and that was just part of Jesus' work in life. And perhaps we need to start to rebuild. And I don't know. Maybe I'll get fired through the series. Maybe I won't. We'll see. But we're going to ask questions. We're going to wrestle through things. And I don't know what all we're going to cover. Like, maybe it's a good conversation around how do we read Genesis 1 through 11? Are we supposed to read it very literally, historically? What do we do with a flood? What do we do with Adam and Eve? What do we do with the Tower of Battle? How do we wrestle through that? Is it, is it myth? Is it a historic myth? Is it all these great? Those are great questions. And hear me, as your pastor, I don't know. I have some theories. I'll gladly talk about them. But I'm not sure. And so we learn to read. We learn to read this well. We learn to read this faithfully. We wrestle with the questions in the text. We, we point out all the weird things in the text. It's like, I was just having a conversation the other day. I, I have no clue where we are in this timer. Um, but, like, at some point, we always see paintings of, yeah, I see it there, I, but it got reset at some point. Um, we're, we're, we're wrestling through, um, like, all the paintings I've ever seen of the Genesis Garden, the snake looks like a snake. But if you read Genesis 3, the punishment to the snake is that it can no longer necessarily walk and it has to crawl on its belly all the time. So at some point, did the snake like have arms and legs? Did it look like Trogdor, for those of you that are like my age who grew up with Homestar Runner? Um, what did it look like? Those are good questions. I don't know. And, and so what am I supposed to do with that? And how do I wrestle through that? And you know, all these sort of questions. And, those are good questions. They're textual questions. They're important questions. Why is nakedness a thing? That's a weird thing that they would notice. Of all the things that they could have noticed about what sin entered into their life, why is it nakedness? It's a, it's a weird thing. It's a good question. Wrestle. And start rebuilding. 
perhaps we can learn to extract maybe American evangelicalism from some of the pieces that are true historic Christianity, built upon creeds and confessions of the early church. Perhaps we can look at word users like heaven and atonement and salvation and maybe see that those words might be something bigger than what we've been handed, what the kingdom is really all about. Perhaps moments to lament, as I said, around all the different ways that church has been abusive, particularly in regards to race and gender. The way it's focused on certain sins at the expense of others. Lament the way that power has been abused in the church and then start rebuilding a healthy understanding of what the church is and should be. Perhaps look at weird cultural norms like individualism or the love of and pursuit of comfort that sometimes affects the church in ways that distorts the gospel and start rebuilding from there. Perhaps learn to sit in the paradoxes of faith. Sometimes in our sort of post-enlightenment world, we're like, these two things about God are stated in the scripture and we have to logically make them all work. But I, I don't know. It wasn't a problem before 200, 250 years ago. Maybe we're bringing modern sensibilities to texts that we are not supposed to necessarily deal with. That God suddenly has to fit into this logical box all the time. Perhaps we examine ancient languages and understand what they actually meant. Perhaps we, in fact, historic faithful teaching, examining concepts like the rapture or heaven or justification or prophecy or hell and all these words and examine ways that we've defined it versus the ways the ancients or even the language itself defines it. Perhaps we critiqued traditional collectivist culture and postmodern individualist culture and look at how Jesus provides a third way. Perhaps we can be faithful to the whole image of God and what the church looks like, where both genders are working together to live out God's mission for the first humans to bring all things under the kingship of Jesus. Perhaps we can understand what learning and community looks like. Like, we, we realize that up till 300, 400 years ago, most Christians couldn't read a book. And so learning was a communal practice. The idea of like independent study was not as big of a deal as sometimes we make it here. And it was a communal practice. You sat down together. You wrestled with text. You talked about it. You, 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 you had somebody that would help guide you, maybe. But we have our very individualistic understanding of how to read scripture that I don't think is that historic. Perhaps we learn to see how beautiful the kingdom of Jesus is that he came to bring and helps us understand that even things like justice are a part of the gospel. The gospel is more and greater and bigger than the simple statement of a salvation from our sins. Perhaps see that Jesus in Christianity is not anti-intellectual or anti-science, that Christianity is also way beyond self-help or empty consumerism. It is a way of living a way of life, a way of Jesus. That's why they were called that in the early church. This new subset of Judaism that was distinct and different because it was followers of the way. And that's the plan. You may have heard it said one way, but you may have seen it one way, experienced it one way, understood it one way. And maybe it was marred, distorted, shattered. Maybe it misrepresented Jesus. I don't know. But my hope is that we would take time to wrestle through it all. Do you know what I love that I think we miss out on because of language? Um, why is Israel called Israel? Let me know. 
Like, where did the where did the name Israel start? Yeah, Jacob, right? And when did his name get changed from Jacob to Israel? Yes, when he wrestles. He's this wrestling moment with God. And the name Israel ultimately means like to contend with, to wrestle with. So whenever Israel is called Israel, they are being described as the people who wrestle. <laughs> That's their descriptor. That's the title of the people. And I don't think it's a title of the people because they're like constantly bitter and stuff. I think that's a weird reading sometimes of, of exactly what the Jewish people were all the time. But they are people that contended and wrestled with what was true and walked with God and asked questions and wrote amazing psalms and tried to figure out as they were trying to be obedient to what was true. And they stumbled and they messed up just like we do. Most of the time, we're the Israelites in the story. We're not David with our amazing rock. We're the ones who are like, yeah, I, I don't know how to deal with this. <laughs> and Jesus comes along. It's like, I'll, I'll deal with it. And my hope, as I said, whether it gets me fired or not, is to invite you into that wrestling because I am going through it too. And I've been going through it for years and years and years. And it's okay. My, my hope on the other side of whatever doubt if there is another side, it's that you are drawn in deeper to who Jesus actually is. And maybe all the things that you're handed might have caused more confusion and caused you to reject the baby or the bathwater with the baby, whatever, vice versa. It caused you to just throw it all away. And as I said, I've, I've sat down with a few of y'all recently and it's like, man, I hope you don't associate us with this thing over here, this thing over here, this thing over here. What you've associated with Jesus, I, I, I have not experienced in my life. And, and, and most of the people I hear with their deconstruction and deconversion stories are things that I've never experienced in the church. I've heard stories about. I've heard real hurt and trauma. I am not negating that those things are real. But I want to make sure we clear maybe the fog that might exist around Jesus so we can see him more clearly. Not see the boundary lines, not see the boxes that we put him in, but to see Jesus just as he is. And that does involve going to his word. It does involve tipping our hat back to history and how they've talked about it. I think it's foolish to be like, it's, it's uh, what C.S. Lewis calls a temporal elitism, like to think that we're finally arrived and will at this point in time understand Jesus and they didn't. There's something to history. I'm for it. But for us to just wrestle. And if you have doubts, struggles, stuff like that, and you're in community, gosh, may, may this week push away from the table. But press in. I, I have been so blessed in my faith to be able to have people around me that I can really wrestle with. Like Sarah and I, when we went through the two-year Bible, gosh, some of the stuff we talked about, it's like, this might be heresy, but... And we walk through it. We talk through it. And it's a good wrestle. And I hope there's space for all of you here to do the same. Let me pray for us and we'll step into communion. God, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for, um, thankful for your and I's wrestling. That ultimately, God, in so doing, God, I just want what is true, what is good, what is right, what is, what is of you 
what is of your kingdom. And so, God, um, I pray for that for, for our community. And on this side of your return or our death, that we'll never arrive at all the conclusions, all the answers, all the things that sometimes we want. But God, your invitation in is to relationship, not to answers. And to know you is not to know facts, but just as Greek and Hebrew both plays it, it is to intimately have a relationship with you. To know you like a, 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 a spouse. And God, we got a lifetime with you to wrestle, to ask questions, to grow, to mature, to deconstruct, to reconstruct. And God, I pray that we do that faithfully, seeking simply to know you, to love you, and to live out your call to love the neighbors as ourselves and to proclaim the good news of what you are doing in new creation and through your kingdom. You are the saver of our souls, the restorer of our walls, and the one who will bring a more beautiful and true kingdom to this world in its fullness. So until then, God, I pray that those of us who doubt and are disoriented and disillusioned and are still learning what it means to be a disciple, I pray that you are with us and know us in our journey. I pray I'll listen to your name. Amen.